And uh, it is also called Deep Lent because we're digging deeper and deeper into, into Lent and what it means to strip away all of the extraneous things that have been accrued in our lives in which we have put hope and trust, and we're stripping everything away. <clears throat> Those disciplines of prayer and fasting or giving up and, and uh, sacrificial giving, all of those things are, are drawing us deeper and deeper into this Lenten season. Um, if you're like me, I can't wait for Easter now because it's just really, you know, it's that stripping away, but it's that necessary stripping away that happens for us during Lent so that Easter morning is that much more glorious. And um, a churchman has said, Lent is not self-improvement. Lent is not self-denial for the sake of some moral gratification. In other words, um, if you've given up chocolate or whatever you might have given up for Lent, it's not so that you can feel good about yourself that you've actually managed to do it, or there's kind of a second thing, well, maybe I'll give up chocolate because that'll also help my weight. You know, it's not about that. Lent is is just digging deeper and deeper, and he says this, that it's most basic. Lent is about awaiting death. It is the uncomfortable and unwelcome reminder that we will grieve and we will die. But we live in a time when that reality um, in village life earlier, death was around. You know, we were confronted with death. When we lived in small communities and we weren't transient and we stayed in the same community, we were confronted with death. But death now um, seems to be once removed from the immediacy of our experience. We do see death, of course. We see it on the TV screen. We see children blooded in the outskirts of Damascus in Syria, in Ghouta in Syria. We see it in the faces of grief in the parents and the students from the school shootings. And although we're affronted by seeing that, um, and we grieve for the parents and the students, we see the events mediated through our TV screens and kind of think, well, that can never happen to us because we don't see the immediacy of it in our own lived experience. And in the West, we've also come to think that because of modern medicine, we can actually hold back the decay and aging of these bodies and put off the fact that these bodies are actually wearing out and we can tend to hide from our mortality. The Israelites could not do so in the wilderness. God had brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, miraculously through the Red Sea waters, and they now find themselves in the wilderness. And there had been no food, but God had provided food from heaven. He had provided manna for them to eat. He had promised that he would see them through, that what they needed would be provided and they would not die, but they did not trust God. They didn't trust his promises or that he would provide. The people, we read, spoke against God and against Moses. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. And because they look on God's perfect provision with contempt, death is all around them in the form of venomous serpents. But then realizing their sin, they ask Moses to call out to God to remove the snakes from their midst. Now, could God have removed the snakes? Of course, God could have removed the snakes um, completely from the encampment. But instead, God tells Moses, form a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and raise it up and tell the people that if they are bitten by the serpents, if they look on that they will be healed. Now, that's not to say that this becomes some kind of uh, magic object. God is basically saying there are consequences for sin. There are consequences from turning away from God, from not trusting his promises. But there is an anti-venom. There is a remedy to the venom that infects the body And the remedy is, if you trust the promises of God and you look up and trust that what God has said about looking on the serpent and being healed, you will indeed be healed. So he's not corporately removed the serpents from the encampment. He's made it an individual choice whether or not to look up, trust God, and be healed by looking on the serpent. The venomous snakes are still there, but there is an anti-venom on a pole if they look and trust in God. It's God who still heals. It's just their act of looking and trusting that provides for them the healing from the venom. But then Jesus, in today's passage in the gospel, in John's gospel, makes an analogy between himself and that serpent on the pole. How is Jesus like the bronze serpent in the desert? He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. But is Jesus the serpent? Is there evil in Jesus? Paul wrote, God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin. So Jesus, in in a sense, that serpent on the pole in the wilderness, Jesus is perfect humanity. There is no sin in him, but all of the sins of the world All of that sinful nature is put onto Jesus on the cross. All the sin and the evil that has infected God's people because of our enemy, the Satan, the serpent in the garden, all of that sin is laid on Jesus. And he becomes the perfect anti-venom for those infected with the poison of sin. For as Paul also says, the wages of sin is death. In other words, the result of sin is our mortality, our eternal death.
But just as God provided the antidote to the physical serpent's venom by trusting God, that in looking on the bronze serpent, healing would come, so also God has provided the antidote to our foe's spiritual venom and therefore also our physical death by looking on Jesus on the cross and believing that there, sin and death was overcome. On the cross, our sin is exchanged for Jesus' righteousness if we look up and believe. See, just as the Israelites needed to trust God and his promises that they would be healed if they looked at the serpent, so also if we look on Jesus high and lifted up on the cross with our sins upon him and trust that there God has dealt with sin once and for all, then we are healed of the venom of the serpent in our own lives. And so therefore, we receive through that, instead of the wages of sin, the gift of life, the gift of eternal life. Death is not eternal, but merely a gateway into immortality, into eternal life. In the words of Max Lucado, Death used to be the end. Now it is the beginning. The cemetery changes. People once went there to say goodbye, but now they go to say we'll be together again. Even the coffin changes. It is no longer a box where we hide bodies, but rather a cocoon in which the body is kept until God sets it free. Of course, it's an individual choice. The gift is freely given. But it's an individual choice as to whether we will believe and whether or not we will actually receive the ultimate healing. As old Jack says in Wendell Berry's novel, the modern ignorance is in people's assumptions that they can outsmart their own nature. The modern ignorance is that people's assumptions that they can out is in the people's assumptions that they can outsmart their own nature. In other words, our nature itself is infected by sin, and yet people trust that they themselves can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps out of that sinful nature. It is, he says, in the arrogance that will believe nothing that cannot be proved and respect nothing it cannot understand and value nothing it cannot sell. Or similarly, in the words of N.T. Wright, we live in a world where human beings left to themselves not only choose the wrong direction, but remain cheerfully confident that it is in fact the right one. Indeed, people regularly point out as evidence of its being the right one how confident they are on the subject. In other words, if I'm going in the right direction, I believe that I'm going in, if I'm going in the wrong direction, I believe that I'm going in the right direction. I'm going to keep telling you that I'm going in the right direction, even though I'm going in the wrong direction. We are so assured of the rightness of our cause, the rightness of our path, that we do not see that we're going off the ledge of death 
of sin into complete and utter eternal death. But then there are still others who see the depths of their own sin and do not trust that Christ's death on the cross can save them from the depths of their own depravity. They are so confronted with their own sin in their lives that they just cannot trust that the blood of Christ on the cross is all sufficient for their redemption. Such was the case with the man in black. Many of you will know that I'm talking about Johnny Cash. In October of 1967, Cash was at his, was what he considered the darkest point in his life. His personal and professional lives had spun out of control and he'd become isolated from everyone around him. He had built his life on the fleeting nature of fame and fortune. Feeling like he could no longer go on, he decided to end his life. I never wanted to see another dawn, he recounted later. I'd wasted my life. I drifted so far away from God and every stabilizing force in my life that I felt there was no hope for me. Driving his Jeep to Nickajack Cave, a remote subterranean cave near the Tennessee River, he entered the mouth of the cave, hoping to descend deep enough within the labyrinth of passageways to never be found alive. After hours of crawling inside the tunnels, he lay down in the consuming blackness to die. The absolute lack of light was appropriate, for at that moment I was as far from God as I had ever been, Cash remembered. Yet as he lay in that dark abyss, he began to focus on God, and suddenly he felt overcome by a sensation of complete peace. With a renewed sense of hope, he began to slowly inch his way along the cave floor, blindly crawling towards what he hoped was the outside. After a while, a slight breeze led him to a stream of light, which eventually led him to the outside world. He summed it up this way in his autobiography. The greatest joy of my life was that I no longer felt separated from him. See, as Johnny Cash came to know, it's all grace. It's just grace. Our trust in Jesus lifted up on the cross is not what provides eternal life for us. It is merely how we receive the gift of forgiveness of sins and therefore immortality and therefore eternal life lifted up into God's presence with Christ. The act itself is God's. Why? Just because of the love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And Paul continues on that theme. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, but 
God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So if Lent brings us, as it should, to the full realization of our mortality, it also leads us to the amazing grace that is offered up for us, high and lifted up, so that gazing there in trust, we see death not as the end of life, but as the gateway into new and eternal life. So may we choose life. Amen.